Muslim Chat presents Heroes of Islam, a 30-part series on the lives of some of the greatest Muslims to walk this earth. So today we will speak about an interesting figure, the one who is, we could say he is not criticized by anybody in Islamic history and he was loved by everybody. But before we go to that, we have to go to a bit of his history. So Abdullah ibn Zubair ibn Aslam narrates from his father who narrates from his father, so Aslam, and Aslam was usually accompanying Umar ibn al-Khattab on his night journeys. So one time Umar ibn al-Khattab was monitoring Medina in the night time and uh, he was he heard a voice from some house and he just decided to just lean on the wall for a while to take a break. So he overhears a convo between a girl and her mother. So the mother says to the girl, add water to the milk. Umar, said, Umar heard this and he's thinking, okay, what's going to happen now? The girl says, no, I can't because Amir Mu'minin Umar ibn al-Khattab made this. So the mother says, but uh, he's not here. He can't see you. So what's the big deal? Just do it. You won't find out. So then the girl says, but the Lord of Umar knows. So I will not do this at all. So next day, Umar ibn al-Khattab was thinking, okay, this is a special person. Let's go see what she's like. So he sent someone in. He's like, go and see if they added water to the milk or if it's as it is. He goes over to uh, he goes over to um, the place, and this person he buys the milk and brings it in and sees. Okay, there's no water added. So the, okay, that's good. He goes to Asim and he's like, so Asim is the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, and he says, uh, I want you to marry that girl because she's righteous and she is muttaqi. So Asim marries that girl. From these two come a girl named Layla. Now Layla grows up in the household of Umar ibn al-Khattab around all the righteous sahaba and whatnot. Then another person comes in the picture. His name is Abdul Aziz ibn Marwan ibn al-Hakim. He was also a very righteous man. He was very careful about what he earned. He narrated a hadith from Abu Huraira. And he would be in the company of the Sahaba. He was very diligent in trying to gain as much knowledge as he can. He wasn't a scholar, but he would look for a hadith of Rasulullah If he didn't find a hadith with Abu Huraira, he would send letters to Sham and say, if you know any of the Sahaba in Sham, send me some of their hadith so that I may learn. So Abdul Aziz marries Layla. From these two come a person who is for the first mujaddid in Islam, who is a mujtahid, who is among the best of people in his time. His name is Umar ibn Abdul Aziz ibn Marwan ibn al-Hakim. His kunya was Abu Hafs. <clears throat> About this, Imam Ahmad said, if you see a person loving Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, speaking good about him, then inshallah this person has good in him behind him. <clears throat> So when Umar was young, he used to go and see the stables of his father. And one day he was looking at the horse and the horse ended up kicking him in the face. And 
they started to bleed from that scar. So his father came over and started to wipe away the blood and says, if you have this scar of Bani Marwan, you will be very lucky. So what actually happens is that Umar ibn al-Khattabi sees a vision of the future. He sees that from my descendants, there will be a person who will have a mark on his face. And he will fill the just fill the earth with justice, just as it was filled with injustice. When uh, Abdullah ibn Umar had a son named Bilal, they saw a little mark on his face, so they thought it was him. But later on, they said, no, it's actually Umar ibn Abdulaziz. And then he became known as Ashaj Bani Marwan, the one with the mark of the Bani Marwan. <clears throat> From a young age, his father made it very strict upon him to be punctual in his Islamic studies. So when Umar ibn Abdulaziz was four years old, Abdulaziz ibn Marwan was delegated as the governor of uh, Egypt or Misr in that time. So he ends up going there and uh, then he calls his family and says, I want you guys to come and live with me as well. So Layla goes to Abdullah ibn Umar. She's like, you know, this is what I've been told, uh, but I like Medina, I want to stay here. Abdullah ibn Umar says, well, he's your husband, you should listen to him and you go, but leave Omar with us, leave your son with us so that we may nurture him and raise him well. So Omar ibn Abdulaziz is still in Medina with all of the Sahaba and them and Layla is gone there, so when she arrives there Abdulaziz is like, where's Omar? Where's Omar? So she's like, I left him with Abdullah ibn Omar because he asked for me to leave him with him, so he's like, okay Alhamdulillah, that's good, if he's with them then that's fine. What happens one day, Umar ibn Abdulaziz was uh, late to one of his classes. So his teacher told one of the people in his household who ended up telling Abdulaziz ibn Marwan. So Abdulaziz ibn Marwan says, uh, okay, did you guys ask him why he was late? So they're like, yeah, um, said he was playing with his hair. Like, okay, he, t- he gets uh, a barber and he tells him, make sure you shave the head of Umar ibn Abdulaziz completely bald. So that shows you, if anything distracts you from the knowledge of deen, just get rid of it. That's how his policy was with him. <clears throat> One day, his father decided to return for Hajj. And he wanted to know, like, you know, how's my son going? So he goes to Saleh bin Kisan and he says to him, you know, tell me about my son. And he says, there's no one but more taqwa and the fear of Allah than this boy amongst the people here. It was said that one day when he was young, he started to cry. So his mother says to him, why are you crying? He says, it's the fear of death. Then she ended up crying too. And this was a common thing throughout his entire life. He would constantly remember death. <clears throat> he learned from eight of the Sahaba and he learned from about 30 of the Tabi'een. From the Tabi'in, he learned from uh, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib. And Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, after Umar became governor, he was the only governor that Sa'id ever visited. He never liked to go amongst any of the other rulers and visit them. But with Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, he went to Umar ibn Abdulaziz, and they were literally like friends even after governorship and Khilafah. Whenever Umar had a question that was bugging him a lot, he would say to Sa'id and even like, Come here, help me out. I need your help. He had, in some narrations, 14 sons and three daughters, and in other narrations, 12 sons and six daughters. 
It was said that one of his sons died. His name was Abdullah. When he was burying Abdullah, he was smiling. So someone said to him, why are you smiling? He says, I'm not smiling because I'm happy he died, but I'm smiling because he always was from the most righteous of my sons and always reminded me to fear Allah. So I have good hope for him in the akhirah, inshallah. <clears throat> One day he was reading the Quran and he started to cry out of the fear of Jahannam. So his wife enters in. She also starts to cry. Then his son, another son named Abdul Malik enters in. He starts to cry and he says, why are you crying? Oh, father. So Umar says, it's fine. Like, Don't worry about why I'm crying, but I fear for you and your family. So his wife is Fatma, it's Abdul Malik. So Abdul Malik from a young age, he liked Umar ibn al-Khattab or Umar ibn Abdul Aziz a lot. So he would just always be with him, be very friendly to him, treat him like his own son. And this is how you, later on, you see how he merges within the family in a way because of how much he was around the sons of Abdul Malik. <clears throat> so his, there's a little interesting thing about Fatima. She was like surrounded by royalty from every end. Her father is a Khalifa. Her grandfather is a Khalifa. She has three brothers. All of them are Khulafa. Her husband is a Khalifa. Early on in his life, around the age of, I could say in his late 20s, he was given the governorship of Medina. And during that, an incident happened where a person named Khabib bin Abdullah was narrating some very weak hadith to back up his points. So Abdul Wali, uh, Abdul Malik bin Wali, Al Walid bin Abdul Malik got really mad at this and he said to Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Ash him 100 times for this kind of act, for trying to use the deen to impress your peers or try to get your point across when it's not even from the deen. Umar got a bit angry at him as well, so decided to take the punishment a step forward. He pours cold water on him and makes him stand in the evening outside. Then he puts him back in the prison, but by this time he had already caught pneumonia, so he has a disease and he's freezing right now. Umar ibn Abdulaziz sees his state in such sickness, so he says, okay, I'll release you, go try and get medical help, but by the time he even gets to his house, he's seen on the bed and he just died. So there's a guy named Al-Madi Shun, or, and he, he goes to see Khubayb. He sees that he's dead, but Umar doesn't know he's dead. He, then he goes over to Umar's house and he asks for permission to enter. He enters and he sees Umar is sitting there like he's looking like there's some kind of pain going through his body. Like he said that it was as if I saw Umar going through labor or something like he had that kind of look on his face of extreme pain. So then Omar says, what has happened with Khubayb? He says, you don't know? He just died. Omar, upon hearing this, he faints and passes out. Then he comes back. He regains consciousness, says, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Faints again. This kept happening a few times. So this incident was a mistake on his part. He didn't mean to try to kill him. But because of this mistake, he for the rest of his life, whenever anybody would mention like, oh, you've done this good deed, you've done that good deed, 
you would always say, what about Khobeb? Like, I would always think, like, you think my good deeds are a lot? I, I murdered a person. Or he, that's how he thought of it, that he had committed murder. So then uh, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz had a little bit of a fearsome approach with the rulers in his time as well. One of the people, the governor of Iraq in the time was Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf What would happen is, because Umar ruled Medina with such great justice and equality, everyone from Iraq decided, let's just ditch uh, the lands of Hajjaj and go to live under Umar ibn Abdulaziz's land. So they start migrating. Hajjaj gets a bit angry. He's like, you know, tells Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik, What's going on? Why is Omar like uh, getting all the people on his side? So Hajjaj, because he had power in the, and economic authority as well at the time, he basically pressured and Walid ibn Abdul Manuk to dismiss Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. But before this happens, there was a lot of back and forth between them, like the Hatred and the anger was between them. Even on one occasion later on, Umar ibn Abdulaziz makes takfir of Hajjaj because of the way he treats the Sharia. But one day, uh, Umar ibn Abdulaziz gives an advice to Al Walid ibn Abdul Malik and says, You will be held accountable for what your governors do. So tell them to stop killing innocent people because they're all walimeen. Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik sends a letter to all of them, but Hajjaj thinks it's specifically to him when he gets the letter. So he wants to like, you know, try to back up the point that I'm not killing anyone for a wrong reason. I only killed the Khawarij. So he actually goes and finds somebody named Arabi Al-Haruri. So he's actually a Khawariji. And he says to him, come here, he's like, what do you say of Muawiyah? The guy says nothing. He's like, what do you say of Yazid? He says, Lahnatullah Alay, basically he curses Yazid, and he says, uh, what do you say about Abdul Malik bin Marwan? The Haruri curses him as well. He says, what do you say about me? He curses him as well. So what do you say about uh, Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik? And then he curses him as well. So then Hajjaj says, okay, I want to prove that I don't kill wrongful people. So he grabs him and he says, go to Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik. So they go. Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik had an executor named Ibn, Ibn al-Rayyan. He's sitting there with the sword. And he asked the same question to Al-Arabi. And after uh, the, he gives the same answers, Al-Walid gets mad and says to Ibn al-Rayyan, get up and kill him. So he gets killed. And then he calls Omar ibn Abdul Aziz and like, my policy is wrong. Was I wrong to kill him? He says, yes, you were wrong to kill him. So what do you mean? He insulted me and my father. He, start, he insulted the Khulafa. Why should I not kill him? He says, you should have imprisoned him and asked him to repent from that, not kill him for that right away. And this was his policy with everyone, that he was very calm, that even later on when he becomes a Khalifa, he also exhibits this. Okay. Now that's enough backstory. Now let's get to how he became the Khalifa. And I'm trying to very much summarize his life because there's just so many details that this could go on for hours. He became friends with Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik's brother named Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik. Suleiman was much more righteous and much more conscious. But since they were friends, he, Suleiman would you know, always ask him. So when Al-Walid passed away, Suleiman became the Khalifa and... Uh, 
The first thing Suleiman did was he fired Al-Hajjaj, get rid of him. Second thing he did was that one day they were, <clears throat> Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik were walking and a thundercloud came over them and started to you know, strike lightning. And Suleiman got a bit terrified and he says, you know, maybe this is from the anger of Allah. So Umar says, no, this is not from the anger of Allah, this is from the rahmah of Allah. His anger sounds much different, meaning in the Akhirah, the son of Jahannam. So then Suleiman was a bit uneasy and he says, no, you know, I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is angry at me. So here's a hundred thousand dirhams, go and give it in charity somewhere. So Umar says, no, I have a better idea. He says, what is that? It's like, your people are asking for rights that they have been given. So Suleiman got the hint and he basically wrote to all of his governance and he says, you know, restore the rights of people, try to get rid of all of these unnecessary taxes. After a while, Suleiman is about to pass away. He has a faqih in his presence, one of the ulama he really loved. His name was Raja. This was like a very strong personality and a very strong figure. He was also tall and very, you could say, he brings a presence of fear in the people. So Raja said to Suleiman, he's like, usually it would go in line, so you would probably put Hisham ibn Abdul Malik next, but he says, no, don't put Hisham, put Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. So Suleiman says, oh, that, that sounds good, he's a good man. So he writes in his will that the next person to become Khalifa is Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And so Raja after Suleiman dies and Raja comes out of the place and he says to Umar and he's like, you're going to become the Khalifa. But it's like, why? It's like, because I told Suleiman to tell you to make you the Khalifa and you're going to become the Khalifa. So Umar is getting the hand at that, okay, you know, I shouldn't argue. But still, he wants to like, try to get out of the position of responsibility. And at this time, Umar is only 37. So he's really young as well. He goes in front of the people and he says, Oh people, I have been delegated the task that I did not choose. And if you wish to pick somebody else, then please pick them. I do not want to be amongst you a tyrant that you do not like. So they all started to cry and they said, No, Allah, we choose you. You are the best for this job and you are the best amongst them. So Umar ibn Abdulaziz gets the hint that yeah i'm stuck here forever for the rest of my life <clears throat> so before he was khalifa he was very easy going bit flamboyant buying expensive dresses but as soon as he became the khalifa it was like the zohad of hassan al-basri descended in him or even more than that it is said that a man after his Khilafah met him, and he was wearing a cheap cloth or cheap like thawb worth two dirhams. So the man says, you know, I met you in Medina when you were a young kid and you used to not take anything less than 1,000 dirhams as a thawb. So what happened to you now? This responsibility has come upon me. So now I can't, I can't spend from the people's money as I wish. One of the first things he did as a Khalifa was abolish all taxes besides the taxes legislated in the Sharia. So like he only had Zakat, the Jizya, the Hushar, and the taxes that were there with the Dalil 
from the Quran, the Sunnah, the life of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. And this is going to do something under his reign that no one before him achieved and no one after him achieved besides the prophets. We'll get that, get to that in a few minutes. He was so mutqin or so accurate in trying to be like the Prophet وسلم, in ibadah that one day Anas ibn Malik prayed behind him and said that I have not seen anyone pray exactly like the Prophet وسلم, like this man. Fatima bin Abdul Malik says that Wallahi it was not that Omar used to spend a lot of his nights praying tahajjud in extra rakat or spend his time in a lot of ibadat of recitation of the Quran but rather there was taqwa in his heart and he feared Allah more than any of you. I would see him in the night at times awake from his sleep shivering and crying and I would ask him what's wrong and he would say Tomorrow I will stand before Allah and you will ask me about the people and I don't know how I will answer. Abdullah ibn Umar had a son named Salim. So Salim, now bring a little bit back, but Salim was very beloved to the people. He was a scholar amongst the people and he was always honored even by Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik. He would like him and honor him. So one day, Salim enters upon Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik and uh, Al-Walid says to him, oh, come here, sit beside me. So he's like giving him the seat of honor. This man, he's sitting there and he goes to Omar and he says, couldn't your uncle find a better dress to wear in the presence of Amir al-Mu'mini? So Omar, learning from the hustle of Omar ibn al-Khattab, who gave a very similar response before, he says that, I don't see your clothes raising you to his rank, and I don't see his clothes lowering you to your rank. So saying like your clothes didn't make you better, and his clothes don't decrease him. This is like when Umar ibn al-Khattab said to Abu Ubaidah, Umar ibn al-Jarrah, when he saw him in Jerusalem with you know ripped up clothes and patches on them. So he said, Islam that Allah, we are a people that Allah honored us with Islam. So. We don't, have, we don't seek honor from anything else or else we'll be humiliated. <clears throat> During his khilaf, he was very careful with the money of the Baytul Mal. He himself didn't take much. And to his sons and daughters, he would also say to them, like, you know, don't expect to live an easy life. You're not going to always have a fun aid. You're not going to always get what you want. And I'm not going to treat you more special than anyone. At the time he was given Khilafah, he said to Fatma bin Abdul Malik that, you know, this life that we're going to go through now is not going to be easy. So you either donate your jewelry to the Baytul Mal and stay with me or you leave me. So she said, no, Allah, I choose you. And she gave her jewelry away to the Baytul Mal. It is said that he would always tell his advisors that at night time, don't leave the lamp on for too long. You'll be wasting the oil, and this oil is from the money of the people, and you'll be asked about it in Qiyamah. He even used to say that, don't waste any ink as well. He was very careful with what the people, or what the possessions of the people, and how to deal with them. So now comes a bit of his amazing achievements during his Khilafah. He was the first one to administer the writing down of hadith and get together the 
collection of hadith. So he told Abu Bakr ibn Abi Hazim, Abu Bakr Muhammad bin Hazim, who was his governor at the time in Medina, that go and find all the muhadithin and tell them to come together, listen to their narrations, collect them amongst yourself and codified because I fear that the ulama will die, the knowledge will go with them, so you know, let's preserve it. He also created some schools and administered the teachers, and from his policies was, if I put a scholar in charge of any of these schools, you are not to do any work outside of teaching. I will take care of your salary, I will take care of your families, you are not doing anything else. You are just to teach and bring out the best students in the summa. So because of his policy of abolishing taxes, people were not as poor anymore. But a bit more interesting than that is that Yahya bin Sa'id, this was about a bit to the later time of his reign and his rulership, that Yahya bin Sa'id says that Umar ibn Abdul Aziz delegated me to Africa to go and distribute the zakat funds. I went through all of Africa and I could not find anyone to take the zakat. Whenever I would go to any of them, they would say, oh, we already possessed the nisab, we're the ones who gave the zakat. So he you know, did this, then he came back to Umar bin Abdulaziz and says, yeah, you, you don't have anyone in the entire Khilafah now to take zakat. So he says that I ended up spending money on freeing the prisoners. So you can see from his policy and his taqwa, his immense carefulness with the wealth in the Baytul Mal, he made everyone in the Khilafah rich, except his own self and his own family. It is said that one day a woman from Iraq came for a little request and uh, she was sitting with Fatima bin Abdul Malik. So Fatima says, you know, wait, Amir al-Mumin is outside, he'll come. So this woman sees a man enter He's wearing like shaggy clothes, ragged clothes, not very noble looking. And then he's like, he's painting something on the wall with his hand, like trying to fix a portion of the wall. So she says, you know, can't you tell your servant to get a bit of a better piece of clothing? So Fatima laughs and she's like, that's not my servant, that's my husband. It's Omar ibn Abdulaziz, the guy you're here for. On another occasion, he also was very fearless. So one day he gets the news that from his uh, ambassador, he sends him to the Romans and they wanted a peace treaty. While he's in their land, he sees a blind man who has his eyes taken out. So the Romans are doing nothing about it. So this Muslim ambassador goes up to him and says, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are people ignoring you? The man says, I accepted Islam and the governor says that if I don't revert back to Christianity, he will have my eyes taken out. So I chose to stay a Muslim and got my eyes removed. So the ambassador hears is like, okay. He doesn't even go to the governor to visit him about the beast treaty. He, he leaves the place immediately and goes back to Omar ibn Abdulaziz and tells him the story. So Omar, in extreme anger, he writes a letter that from Amir al-Mu'minin, Omar ibn Abdulaziz, to the dog of Rome, release that man from your possession 
bring him to me in the best of conditions and fashion him up in the best of conditions and bring him to me or else I will release an army against you, the likes of which the front of it will reach your door while the last of it hasn't left my door. So he's basically saying, I declare war upon you guys now. Either you give this man back or I'm going to destroy your dawla. So, and there was another incident that made him, there was another like, you know, in one riwaya, it says that this man, he said that Umar has ignored us. So this man, he assumed, you know, Umar ibn Abdulaziz knows about everyone in the world, that he's actually ignoring me. So when Umar heard this, he became, he started to cry and he says, I will be held accountable for this on Yom Al-Qiyamah. So the man is sent back in the best of conditions. And then afterwards, you know, the Romans send a guy back and they said, okay, so can we discuss peace now? So Umar says, yeah, peace, get lost. I'm not discussing peace with you guys now. You, you're... You are now declared as Darul Harb between us. There's no treaty or peace between us. His Khilafah was from Spain, Al-Andalus, all the way to what is nowadays uh, Turkestan, so by the border of China. So in this entire Khilafah, in this entire reign, he was able to control it with so much authority and power that everyone in the Khilafah loved him. When they heard of his name, they would become overjoyed. And if he ever heard of the need of a person, he would become tearful and rush to it. He used to say that not an hour goes by, except I remember that. And this was the thing that made him what he was. He always remembered that. He always had the fear of the Akhirah. Despite everything, he wasn't, you know, just a ruler alone. He was just like, I know a few hadith here and there. He was actually mujtahid, so he had the knowledge to do ijtihad in any matter. Imam Ahmed says that no one's speech, no one's speech from the tabi'in constitutes as proof in it of itself except Umar ibn Abdulaziz. So if he says something, you can say that is hujjah in itself. Sufyan ibn Uyayna and Imam Malik ibn Anas, they said he is the Imam of the time, like Imam and as leader in the deen. He was the amongst the best. He was friends with Hassan al-Basri. And amongst one of the things he did when he became Khalifa was elect 10 ulama as his council of advisory. He would always have them amongst him. Whenever a matter would come up, he would always say to them, come and help me out. So let us look at his life before we conclude his talk about how he ended his life because the end of his life is just as amazing, if not even more than how he lived his life. And it's a sign, it's a bushra from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that inshallah he will be in firdaus <clears throat> So from a young age, he was a muttaqi and he had a fear of death. He learned the Quran when he was young. He learned from the best of people. And his father instilled him in the punctuality and the love of deen. So anything distracts from deen or from the knowledge of deen, get rid of it. His immense respect and friendship, ulama, he didn't, you know, hang around just the awam. Yeah, yeah, when he was young, he was a bit flamboyant and in the dunya and used to spend a bit, you know, 
bit carelessly, but his friends were still the best of the people. They were righteous people. So even if, you know, we at times are a bit not like the Zuhad, they're on another level completely. You should always keep friendship as the best, as the pinnacle of all principles that if your friends are good, inshallah, you will be good. If your friends are evil, then there is only one route that can be taken with such a person. And this is not just with Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. Later on in the times of Islam, Ibn al-Jawzi, he was a righteous alim. He had a few sons and daughters, and from them he had a son who ended up getting evil friends. And because of these evil friends, his son, who used to give khutab and speeches in the masajid, his son ended up becoming one of the most worst or one of the most evil people in that time. He became like, very rude, and even he would start to like sell his father's books, steal from his father, sell his books. So to the point that Ibn al-Jawzi became so mad at him that in the Fajr Salah, he used to make dua against him. So if your friends are good, inshallah, you will be good. If your friends are evil, then only Allah can help such a person. Also, his immense reflection of the Qur'an. Whenever he read an ayah of the Qur'an, he didn't say like, okay, this ayah was revealed for the Quraysh, this ayah was revealed for the Yahud, this ayah was revealed for the Nasara, this ayah was revealed for so-and-so. No, he read an ayah. Reveal about Ahlul Kitab, he would start crying, saying that this is a message to me. If you read an ayah about Yawm al he would start crying. One day he descended the member to give the khutbah, start to read, so he recited Surah Al-Takwir, so So he kept reciting and reciting, and as he's going through the signs of Yawm al he gets to the point about talking about Jannah and Jahannam and he starts to cry and he can't stop crying. And the people, the, entire, the entirety of the Messiah, the Masjid, they start to cry as well. He would always say that if you wish to see Qiyamah, then recite these surah, the three surah, surah Taqweer, surah Infitar, and surah Inshiqaq. And this is from a hadith of Ibn Umar that the Prophet ﷺ said this. And that's another factor too, that his role model in life was Abdullah ibn Umar. He would always say to his mother, I wish to be like my you know, granduncle, could say, or uncle, Abdullah ibn Umar. Uh, and his mother used to say, you are like him, inshallah. When he was about to die, or before that, what happens is that there's an account that Bani Umayya got a bit angry with him that you know, he's not really giving us the flamboyant lifestyle that we all wanted and we were all used to. So they decided to get a slave. They said to the slave, we'll give you 1,000 dinars and we'll free you if you poison Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. So the slave fed him the poison. After a while, Omar ibn Abdul Aziz felt that poison and, you know, he calls for that slave and he says, you know, what did you put in the food? Uh, and then the slave tells the whole story that, you know, I was offered money and they said this to me. And uh, so I didn't poison you because I really hated you, but because I was desperate. So Omar says, okay, I forgive you, but get out of this place. Because if if somebody who likes me finds out, they're going to kill you. After that, he didn't leave it there. He said, 
that administer Qisas against Allah Bani Umayyah who told them to do this, go and punish them. When he was about to die, the people around him said, he, he said something very interesting. He said, uh, what are these faces that resemble neither jinn nor human? So he was seeing the angels already. And then right away he dies as soon as he says that. He died in 101 after Hijrah. He was born in 60. Some say 61, some say 62 after Hijrah. So he lived about 39 or 40 years. He died on the 19th or the 20th of Rajab on a Friday. He only left behind him about 19 dirhams and in some narrations 14 dirhams. So he didn't have much. But the reason for this is because he never took anything from the Bayt Sulman. So he was so strict he wouldn't take one there. So someone has said to him that, you know, you're, you made your sons poor. So Omar says, you know, this money is not theirs from the Baytul Mal. I would rather they be poor than they enter the fire of hell and I enter the fire of hell. So this man, he says that. I saw a few years later that the sons of Omar would give 100 horses in the path of Allah while the sons of Hisham ibn Abdul Malik one of them was seen taking charity. And Hisham ibn Abdul Malik left behind for each of his sons 100 million dinars. Oh, may Allah have mercy on the likes of him. He really was in all of the qualities of a mujaddid. So he was a faqih, he was a mushtahid, he knew about the people. And this is how we should approach it, that don't aim for less, aim for the highest. No, it was one day he was sitting and someone asked him, you know, what do you wish for? So I wish to be the Khalifa in a way that like, he didn't desire it for the sake of power and responsibility. But when he was young, he was like, you know, I want to be the Khalifa so that I may rule it with justice, the world with justice and gain a spot under the shade of Allah. This is another thing. Like, Let's just look at it from the hadith there is. The mention of those who will be under the shade of Allah, that from those, he had four of the qualities. Firstly, he was a just ruler. Secondly, he was a youth who was brought up in the worship of Allah. So he didn't play around in the haram or even waste time in that matter. Thirdly, he loved his brothers for the sake of Allah. And only for that sake. So all of his relationships, all of his bonds, all of his meetings were based on that. And fourthly, he was a man whose heart was attached to the masjid. So inshallah, he will have a spot under the shade of Allah. It was said that they engraved on his, uh, on the grave, it was written that Umar ibn Abdulaziz believes in Allah. And then let's see from this that he did what no one ever after him could ever do. And it may be that, you know, it's impossible that anyone would reach what he reached. But again, the one who gives tawfiq, the one who gives uh, the ability to do all of this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Lord of Omar, Ibn Abdul Aziz, is our Lord. So when we make dua, we should not make dua for like you know, little things like, you know, I'm not that great, so you know what, I'll make my dua, just, may Allah just make me amongst those who pray five times a day. No, our dua should be, Ya Allah, make me 
and make my brothers and sisters amongst those who pray a lot of tahajjud. Make us among those who change society's remembrance and your obedience. Don't, like, you know, don't hold back in your dua. Sulaiman, he made a dua to Allah that give me a kingdom that nobody after me will be given. So Sulaiman was given the control of the entire earth. And this is the thing. Aim high, have ambition, and always try to have good thoughts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one who can make Umar ibn Abdul Aziz so great can also make us great, inshallah. But we have to put our effort as well. And with that, we conclude. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika ashadu wa la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa This was produced by the Muslim Chat Discord server, the best online forum run on the principles of the Quran and Sunnah. Find out more and join now at www.muslim.chat.